Welcome back to Uneducated, the show where we feel dumb so you don't have to. I'm your host, Cami Scott, and today I am joined by Sinead Bovell, the model who talks tech and the founder of Way, an organization that bridges the gap between millennials and the digital future. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited for the conversation today. I'm so excited as well. As we were speaking right before we started recording, you were speaking with the United Nations this morning. So thank you for fitting in my little old podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it, I mean, anytime I'm talking technology, it's all kind of in the same bucket. It makes me happy every time. So thank you for having me. Of course. I also mentioned you. I went into a oh, very dark rabbit hole this morning, prepping for the podcast, doing some last minute research. And I was like texting my fam- family group chat, like, do you know this? Are you aware of this? So I'm feel I'm excited and I'm also I don't know if nervous is the right word but I'm I'm like a little overwhelmed with the information and feeling like I don't have the answers to calm me down. I feel like that meme of like all the equations behind me of like woo, it's a lot. It's a lot to take on and I think what's so scary about technology is the unknown and then thankfully there's people like you helping millennials and everyone kind of catch up and understand how it affects us. So I'm, I'm ready to get educated. <laughs> yeah, I know it can, when you go down the AI rabbit hole, especially once the algorithm knows which way you're moving down and can feeds off of your fear, you end up just in like a black mirror deep dive. <laughs> exactly. I felt like I was on an episode of Black Mirror or like it was the same feeling after watching The Social Dilemma, which I'm sure you have heard about. Um, and I just, I yeah, I feel a little hopeless. So let's get into it. Before we get educated, we have to get uneducated. It's time for the trivia question. I kept it really light today because we have a lot to get through. Um, are you ready? I'm ready. And I'm really bad at trivia. So disclaimer. <laughs> I'm horrible. I, it could be trivia about myself and I won't get any right. So, <laughs> What's your address? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I forget now. Okay, the question is, how much does a Times Square New Year's Eve ball weigh? <laughs> I don't even have a guess here. I'm like, I, I can't even, I can't picture it. I know, I can, I'm trying to, that CNN memory, maybe 300 pounds? Yeah, I, it, it has to be a lot. I mean, I know that there's lights in it. So just like the hardware of it all and the wiring, it has to be a lot. I'm going to say a thousand pounds. Wait a second. Doesn't it drop? Yeah, but they like, it's mechanical. They lower it. I don't, I, oh, I have no idea. I haven't seen it. I don't think the full, like, New York New Year. So I'm trying to think if it drops, I feel like it has to be quite light as for safety. If it gets lowered and it's on a crane, then I think it could be upwards of, you know, a thousand pounds. And then I'm also Canadian. So I hope both are right or wrong equally. exactly all right let's see i don't have faith in my answer it is okay we we were really really off it's one or eleven thousand eight hundred and seventy five pounds so perfect so i'm glad she big we're not on logistics (laughs) for that at all (laughs) i don't think anyone knows that everyone feel free to correct me on social media that i that you all knew that and i didn't but (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) So 
as we mentioned, you were speaking at the United Nations this morning. What were you specifically speaking on? Today, I was speaking on bridging the digital gender divide in some of the least developed countries um, and ensuring that youth have access to skills or digital literacy programs for the future of work. Because we know by next year, 90% of jobs will require some sort of digital skill. And so if we're not equipping people equally with that type of access, we're going to have a lot of people locked out of the economy. I think those facts alone are one of the things this morning that really shocked me that I I wasn't even thinking about that. And I feel like that probably comes from a very privileged place that I've never worried about not having the tech that I need. I mean, I use technology every day for work and leisure and staying connected that I didn't even think that we could be leaving so many people behind in this country and other countries just because they don't have access to technology. How do we fix that? Where do we go from here to kind of bridge that gap and make it not such an extreme difference? Yeah, and it's a big question that a lot of minds are working on. It's actually not that hard of a problem to solve when it comes to infrastructure. We clearly know how to build a broadband infrastructure. We know how to distribute smartphones and laptops. Um, I think policy can make things a bit challenging, but also people just pointing resources in the right direction. And I think that's a question across all industries between, you know, rich and poor divide, east, east versus west. I think we have to all do some internal reflection on how we're allocating resources and who seems to be getting better and better off and who do we not even think about. Yeah, I feel like it goes hand in hand with most problems that we face as an entire world of where do we where do we prioritize? Do we prioritize money and business or do we prioritize valuing people and the well-being of people. And it's it's discouraging that that's even a question of which which one takes precedent over the other. But it is. It's kind of it's where we are. Um so you weren't always focused on just tech. I think your story and the trajectory of your life is extremely interesting. Um you even have a video sharing that if you met, well, this was in 2018, so several years ago, if you met you a few years ago, you would have explained yourself in a completely different way. You would have introduced yourself in a different way. Can you give us a little bit on the background of your life and your career and how that expanded? Yeah. And I would say I definitely have a bit of an unconventional path, uh, but what is even conventional nowadays? Um, But yeah, I grew up very focused on academics um, studied finance and biz, uh, finance and chemistry, and then did an MBA and became a management consultant. And so I just was, you know, had my head down in the books for most of my life. And it's as if I suddenly looked up and realized that this isn't the person that I want to be. And I had never defined success for myself. I kind of just looked at what society defined it as, uh, picked a lane that I thought would be I'd be interested in. And I'm glad I still chose business and all of the things I did um, to kind of build up my foundation were the right steps, but the end destination was completely off. Um, and so when I you know, had this consulting job, I realized this is not this is not for me. This isn't who I'm supposed to be. And simultaneously, I was scared by a modeling agency. And it really was not something that was on the table as an individual. For my family, we are not a fashion-focused family at all. None of that. Um, but I saw it as an opportunity to create a different version of life and to take what I had in this old life and, and maybe make something new in a, in a different world. So I quit my consulting job, 
handed back the signing bonus and moved to New York City and you know started modeling, building that life, and then eventually brought back in my business and technology background. That sounds so simple that it was like, yeah, I spent my whole life on this one path and then it just went this other way. But I'm assuming it wasn't as easy as it is to say it now going through it in hindsight. What what was that like for you to just kind of virtually wake up one day and say, this isn't the right path for me. I need to make a change. Was that terrifying? Did you do it quickly? That part, and it was actually quite a long buildup. And I wish I had seen the, the flags more. And I think we, we reflect on relationships where we look at different red flags and, you know, you shouldn't settle, but we often don't think of our careers in that way. And had I had a bit broader perspective or brought that perspective into it, I would have realized that there were so many times I did different internships or different jobs, even before consulting, that I wasn't satisfied with. And I kept thinking, maybe it's because I'm just not high up enough in the company. And so if I build my skills up a bit more and I have a bit more autonomy, I'll probably like this job better. It doesn't matter how high up you are in a lane that you're not passionate about. It will never feel right. And so once it kind of all catapulted, once I became the consultant at the end, I was like, none of this is working. Um, but it, I know I say it in a quick story, but it was about a year and a half of chaos, of anxiety. I actually actually delayed the start date before I actually resigned um, and then again didn't come back. And it was quite a nightmare. And I wasn't really quitting consulting to go beyond the cover of Vogue and just suddenly have this great modeling career. I was going to just go to auditions and try to build my life as a model uh, in a world that I had no idea, even the slightest bit of how it worked or what to do. So it was a lot of anxiety and chaos. And for anyone you know that's listening, that's thinking of making a career jump, it's never going to be easy. And it just gets to a point where you have to just say, okay, this is the point. I might not have everything in order, but who does? Um, but eventually you're going to have to make that trade-off. Yeah. And you had to rewire your brain to understand what success meant to you. I love that your thought was, well, if I get here in my career, then everything's going to fall into place. I feel like we do that with a lot of things in our lives, whether it be, I was speaking on an earlier podcast about weight. So many individuals think, oh, if I'm if my body's a certain way, uh, happiness will occur. And that's just not how it works. You have to be passionate about life or any any roadblock that comes in front of you that you manage to get over isn't going to create your happiness. So good on you for being able to do that. Most people, when they're stuck, stay stuck and just don't know what to do. So it might have been terrifying, but taking that leap was clearly very beneficial for you. In the end, I mean, who even knows? I think it's a Steve Jobs that says, you know, your path only makes sense when you look back at it. And I think that's totally the truth, like quitting and doing all of that. Um, I couldn't have forecasted any of this, but when you look back, it starts, you know, the dots start to connect. Um, but in, when you're going through it, it usually doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've said that we should stop asking kids what they want to be when they grow up. Is it because of that? Because your idea changed or is that more associated with their jobs, maybe not being there because of AI or both? Yeah, it's definitely both. Um, I think we always mean well when we ask, that's usually the first question we ask kids. Um, and it's meant to inspire them and to encourage them that, you know, whatever you say, yes, you can go be that thing. Um, but it confines people to this identity that a job is who they are, as opposed to asking them, you know, who do you want to be, not what do you want to do? 
And I think it would help just from you know an internal stamina point of view to not strap people into this career identity so young. But more practically speaking, yes, many of the jobs that we see today will be completely replaced by technology. So anybody that's in primary school today, um, their job probably hasn't been invented yet. 65% of kids in school today, uh, their jobs haven't been invented. And most kids um, that eventually graduate in the next 10 years will end up working 10 different jobs across five different industries, and that's going to be the norm. So if we, at an early age, start to tell them, you know, oh, you want to be this one thing, and they have a totally different experience in life. We don't want to already have ideas of, you know, failure because that's not at all. The world is changing. Yeah, I feel like we aren't good at adapting and changing. Well, I guess that's not really fair to say, especially after this year, how many people and businesses have adapted to our new norm. But we do get so stuck in this is our lane. This is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I want to be. And I feel like there are currently the people who break that path either have a strong passion somewhere else and they don't want to follow their family's footsteps or whatever is setting them on that path or they just yeah they fall in love with something but what about the kids who don't have a strong passion i always think back to high school where everyone was like yeah just find your passion and being told that was terrifying to me cuz i didn't i didn't feel a strong passion about any one thing so i felt like a failure before i even looked for my first job because i didn't know what i wanted that job to be yeah i think even asking people, especially after I went through all the career chaos, I really don't like asking people, especially if I just meet them, you know, what do you do? Or because you never really know where somebody is in that part of their journey. But I also think, yeah, the question, you know, what's your passion is also kind of fraudulent because most of us, a passion doesn't really exist. You create it. And so when you ask people, what is your passion? Well, of course, we're going to stop and think, well, what exists that I'd want to do? But if it's your true passion, it probably hasn't been invented yet. And so I think just rephrasing around what how life actually works and you know what we actually end up doing. And I usually ask, you know, what are the things that you're naturally curious about? When you're with your friends and you can't stop talking about a topic, maybe it's women's rights or climate change. Those are your natural curiosities. Lean into them. And there might be things within that that you might become passionate about solving. But it's more about leaning into your curiosities and then being motivated enough to try something within them. That is my favorite concept. Everyone on who's listened to every episode of this podcast is probably sick of me saying it. Um, but there's a quote from the woman who wrote... Um, Eat, pray, love, and that's what—that's exactly what she said. Don't follow your passions; chase your curiosity, because then you will find what you're passionate about. And I wish I had heard that earlier. I—I I hope there are younger people listening right now because the value that would have been in that. But again, hindsight and looking back at the road, it all—it all worked out. But gosh, I just—I hope we start teaching kids that a lot more because. I think it would it would create a lot of more exciting minds as well who are more passionate because they weren't pressured to find a passion. Oh, totally. The amount of times I think, I wish I had known this existed or that you could just go create something from scratch. You didn't have to do whatever was on you know, the course career selection booklet. Yeah. And as you said, most of those courses or most of those careers rather aren't aren't available now or won't be available once these students are in the workforce. Um Moving on to AI before my brain goes, it just explodes. <laughs> I was watching your video with Wired and it was 
incredible and so riveting and so eye-opening. And that is what prompted me to immediately go to my family group chat and be like, did you know this? Did you hear this? So that is my big concern with AI. I feel like the internet is incredible because it connects everyone from different backgrounds with different perspectives all in this one place so we can share our thoughts and our feelings and see differences and respect those differences. But in reality, the second you go on any website, any search engine, any social media, and you interact with something, that sets a precedent of what you are going to be consuming. And it is, you may think it's unbiased because you're choosing to click on things, but it is catered to you so much. How do we, as consumers, control that in any way when we are being fed things that already pertain to our biased viewpoints? And that is also a major question that um, technologists are trying to grapple with. I think that there's a few different angles of where change can happen. The first is with data. These companies, most of them don't need to know this much about us. If I sign up um, to donate money to a charity or I buy a mascara, you don't need to track me then for the rest of my life and know what I can proceed to buy or where I live or who I hang out with, with our geolocations. You don't need that type of information. So there's an unnecessary amount of private data that's now being mined and resold. Um, so I think starting there would level the playing field quite a lot um, because it's not even us just kind of going down a rabbit hole. We are literally being fed things um, based on our intimate biases that we may not even know. Um, and I think that that's a really dangerous position to be in. It threatens you know, democracy. How do you have a democracy when a machine knows you better than you know yourself? Um, it's impossible. So I think a big part is starting with uh, data and getting more control over who has our data and why they have it. Uh, you know, my dentist doesn't need to know what I'm up to all the time. Um, and so I think that that would be a great place to start. I think that there is, you know, larger societal questions um, that we're going to have to ask ourselves. On the one hand, is social media in some ways reflective of different pockets of society um, that when aggregated have a voice that may not be helpful, um, but are you minimizing people or is there censorship by not letting these people you know, express what they want to say? So I think that there's all different layers of societal issues, corporate issues, ethical issues with the data. I think that, but if I had to pick one, it would be starting there. People don't need to know everything about us. It's out of hand. Yeah. And it's just second nature at this point. I, I buy a pair of shoes online and I accept the terms of a hundred pages that I don't even read. And then it's just there and they're tracking me. What can I do right now? Do I, do I not accept those terms? What if you can't you use that service without accepting those terms? How do I prevent them from having my data so readily? So there's a few things. Um, most websites and shopping sites give you the option to manage cookies. And I always click yes. And then there's usually some options to not um, have to be tracked in all areas. So there'll be a few that are permanent mandatory. Um, but then there's some you know, targeted ad tracking that you can turn off. So I always do that. Um, I delete my search history as much as possible on my phone and on my computer um, to block cookies that have, you know, are just from your, your website searches. I probably do that at least five or six times a day. I turn off uh, geolocation tracking on most apps. I delete apps that I absolutely don't need. Um, you know, there was a 
point in time when it was so cool just to have all of these different apps that did all of these different things. But that's a lot of intimate data that they're tracking. Um, so I started to delete things. Unless it's something that I actually need, I'm not going to keep it on my phone. And I do read terms and conditions, especially if um, it's an app or a product or a website that I'm not familiar of what the, that country's consumer protection uh, data laws are. And I, I do zoom in, but I know that that's not reasonable for everyone to take the time to read the terms and conditions, but I would always try to manage um, the cookies if you can, you know, delete your search history, delete apps you don't need. Um, but it's, it is unfortunate that we can't just shop freely and give up everything about ourselves. Like that isn't a real compromise um, and definitely something that has to be solved. Yeah, it's scary that we can't trust these sites and these social media pages that we use every day, all day long for a lot of people. I feel like there should be some level of trust added and I I hope we get there. But how much are these companies, should they be held responsible for not tracking our stuff and not just, I mean, their whole goal is to keep us on the app and keep us seeing things that we are going to enjoy and interact. And a lot of people like some of these features. If you're on TikTok, you want to scroll and enjoy the content you're watching. But where do we draw that line? How do we create a safe place we can trust while also seeing content we want to see? Yeah. And I think that that's going to be a balance between regulation and research and development. If we have the intelligence to, you know, spot cancer using artificial intelligence, we have the ability to figure out different ways to put relevant content in front of people. It doesn't have to be stripping us clean of our most intimate parts of our life. Um, and so I think that that's a pretty fair trade-off. I think you don't want to cancel all aspects of data collection. Some of it's important, um, especially in you know sector-specific healthcare or you know other other reasons like that. And I think there will be always some form of minimal tracking, but it shouldn't have to be the compromise that you know everything about me. You can predict intimate things about me before I even am aware of them. And I do think companies should be should be held accountable. Um, recently, with the COVID nineteen apps, um, I think Apple has helped out. Uh, Google has helped out and there the data tracking is really minimal and it's very impressive. So the capability is there. Uh, this is a proof of concept and it's working for the people that do use it. Um, so it's not like the capabilities aren't there. It's just a matter of regulation getting a little bit tighter um, and us having more visibility into what's actually going on. Yeah. So they can clearly do it. It's just making that, that choice to do it. Um, you going off of social media and looking at AI in really the real world, I think a lot of people don't think about how often it's used. You did a post on your Instagram about how Florida is now using AI to help judges decide the likelihood of a defendant to re-offend. That it sounds ridiculous to me. It sounds I think that was an actual Black Mirror episode where they were like predicting people doing a crime before they did it. How are they legally doing this? Yeah, AI is actually in a lot of areas of the criminal justice system. Um, a lot of police use facial recognition technology, even though it's definitely not ready. Um, so it's AI is actually infiltrated in a lot of areas of our lives, even your credit card. That's what's used to detect if somebody, if you have an out of um, frame purchase of something's purchased and they need to flag it. But it coming into the criminal justice system when people's lives are really at stake based on its decision, um, you don't want to have an AI in that position prematurely. 
or not have any humans in the loop. And I think, you know, what happened in Florida, um, and I don't think it was in, you know, a malicious intent, um, but the AI coders saying, you know, this is going to be a lot more objective having AI make this decision. But if it's based off of human data and humans are flawed, we are biased, um, segments of society are openly racist, the data is going to reflect that. And that is what happened in Florida. Uh, I think that they actually ended up pulling the algorithm, hopefully. Um, but that's one small example. And there's thousands that we don't know of. Um, but a lot of AI ethicists and researchers are starting to speak up now. And that's why you know diversity and technology in particular is a crisis because if we don't have people in these coding rooms that are representative of the population, these tools aren't going to work for the population. Yeah. At the end of the day, there is somebody coding this and some, someone's thoughts behind creating the AI. So as you mentioned, there are, there are different racial issues that an AI will pick up that, yes, this, this person statistically is more likely to reoffend, but is that is that a reflection of them or is that a reflection of our society and other layers and other aspects? I think it just really overwhelms me because I see a lot of this tech being created and I understand that there's good intentions behind it, behind most of it. It is supposed to help us as a society make things easier, make things more accurate. But then time and time again, it ends up doing more harm than good. So I'm just, right now, I just don't even see the benefit of it. So I guess on a more positive note, can you speak to some positives of AI and how we can use it to our advantage? Well, um, and even in the example that you provided, um, on the positive side of that, if we are aware that, no, it's not that this particular group in society commits more crimes, it's that they're over-policed. And so if we can build that into how we deploy these tools, um, we do have a better chance at using them properly um, if we decide that we're never going to use predictive technology to decide somebody's innocence based on how they look, uh, then we'll be in a lot better um, of a scenario than we are now. Um, but there's many ways that AI is going to do a lot of good in the world um, and hopefully uncontroversially. And you know, some examples are building more physical robots um, that can go into fires and rescue people without having to send more people you know, into the fire and you know, having their lives at risk, um, helping elderly in homes, lifting them, um, bringing them around, a bit more social um, mobility would be helpful. There's all of these different ways, putting AI in a classroom, for example, and then a teacher can finally have more one-on-one -on -one with students and the AI can deploy certain lessons or do all of the marking. Um, and AI is picking up uh, rates of diseases that are very hard to be visible to the human eye. Uh, so there's all of these ways that AI is going to be used that's really exciting uh, that I'm looking forward to. And even like space exploration, we'll probably have an AI bot of some sort on uh, Mars and different planets before we have people. Um, but there's a lot of cool and exciting elements of AI uh, that I think don't get enough uh, spotlight. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think the lack of trust in it creates people not focusing on all of these really cool and amazing things that even just a couple years ago, we could have never imagined being possible. And with AI, it is going to be possible. So as I mentioned in the intro, you founded the organization Way. How did that become about whenever you were 
juggling switching careers and modeling and so much, how did you create the organization? Yeah, so it definitely happened organically. Um, so when I quit everything and moved to New York and was fully modeling, I was still really adamant that I would do something with my background um, and that I was still very passionate about technology. It's something that I would read and study and advise on. Um, for years and years before, I just didn't necessarily know what my angle would be um, with it. And when I moved into the world of modeling, I noticed that the conversations I was having about artificial intelligence and blockchain and the future of work weren't happening in this creative world, but they were just as important uh, because no job is immune to the future um, and neither is any individual. We all want to know about our data rights. We all want to know about how AI is going to impact our lives. Just not all of us were invited to the rooms where these discussions were happening. And that's where I saw an opportunity to maybe bring that to life. Um, and so I found it a way. It started initially kind of as a blog, and then I moved it more into events. Um, and then it's just kind of grown organically. And I can truly say that this is exactly what I'm meant to be doing, uh, but it's definitely been a process um, and still a lot of work, but I absolutely love it. It's incredible. And it's so necessary to teach people and millennials about tech. It's actually really interesting to me that, and I feel like this happens every episode on the podcast, and I'm like, how are we not organically learning about this in school and preparing for the future? I feel like we are so ill-prepared for the real life. Um, and I think that's the problem that we really need to focus on, the education of young adults so that we can be a little bit more prepared. So what are you telling kids to do in order to be more prepared and have a little bit more insight into their future and how they can kind of be malleable with the ever-changing world? Yeah, I think um, asking them, you know, what problems do you like to solve? Um, that's usually a great starting point uh, because those those are already the ideas or the infrastructures um, where that child is curious or the things that, you know, where they want to make an impact. Uh, with my own nieces and nephews, for example, I talk to them a lot about different emerging technologies, um, like 3D printing. And then I'll ask them about problems that they think the world has. Um, and they'll say, you know, climate change or the environment. And then we'll work through problems of, well, how could this cool device be used to help climate change? And they're like, well, maybe we can print all our snacks at home and not have to drive to the store or use packages. So I'm constantly throwing out problem-solving um, style questions to, to my own nieces and nephews. Um, but when it comes to young people not feeling like they have their resources, I think if you know what technology is capable of, um, maybe you see something in a movie or maybe it's some tool that you use on your phone. And then you apply it, the concept of it, to a problem that you think needs to be solved. Seeing how the technology can do that, um, I think, is always an exciting and a natural way to kind of uncover what it is that you like to solve and the tools that could help you solve that. Um, so that's what I like to do. I'd also like to tell people, you know, subscribe to newsletters, um, whether it's MIT, Harvard, you know, of course, throw out the way newsletter um, to just stay informed as much as you can about the future. Unfortunately, it's not a part of curriculums the way it should be yet. Um, but we have the internet. And there are a lot of resources, you just do have to take initiative at this point in time, uh, to start building the skills and, and the ideas for what the future will really be like. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the initiative is hard it's hard to be there because 
for so long, the way our society worked was listen to your elders. They know best. But we are very rapidly moving into a world of every day there's a new thing that no one has experienced yet, whether it be a new career or a new piece of technology. So we're all really learning and growing together. And the youth of the world are the ones who are picking it up quickly and who are adapting and creating it as part of their everyday life. And I think it's an interesting dynamic having so many adults having to learn from kids and finding that new dynamic. And as teachers are the elders of their students, they might not have those skills a lot of the times to teach these students what to do and how to navigate even just being online. I mean, everything has moved remote this year and I've seen my mom struggling with her business and finding a way to use technology to help her out. And there's so many professors trying to figure out even just a, a Zoom call. It's it's a whole new world that we're trying to navigate and teach students things that adults don't even know. So yeah, we're kind of just flipping the world on its head. I think the one cool thing about artificial intelligence, and we're kind of in a transitionary period, um, but some aspects of AI, which are called machine learning, they learn on their own. So we don't actually have to know any code or know anything about technology. And as it gets smarter, we'll have to do less with it. Um, so you'll eventually just be able to look in the mirror when you wake up in the morning and your mirror will tell you, you know, you're vitamin B12 deficient and I've already stocked it to your Amazon cart. So the goal with technology is actually for it to be less present than more present, um, which means we don't actually have to be very tech savvy, but we do have to have um, our emotional intelligence and our ability to communicate and think critically in a world with such advanced technologies around us. I feel like this conversation goes hand in hand with I believe the layout of the podcast will be last week's episode. I was talking to the founder of Girl Powerful, and that's exactly what we're speaking on, the self-esteem and the emotional intelligence and finding that balance. And I think once we find that blend of the tech savvy, or as you mentioned, you don't you won't actually have to be, but just knowing how these things affect you and being aware, it's it's crazy. I we we really are living in the future, and all these things that I think a lot of us never imagined even seeing in our lifetime. It, it's been here. It's here. It's here to stay, and we're only we're only going to see more. Yeah, we're definitely. And I usually don't get too far into it because I don't like to scare people. You know, I'll wake up and tell my partner something and he'll be like, what? I can't go back to sleep anymore. You just told me and now we're going to Mars in six weeks. This is out of control. Um, so usually I don't give people such crazy information about the future, but we are definitely, um, the future is here in many ways. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing and it's exciting. I can understand how it's also terrifying because we just don't know what the future holds. But I, I mean, that's way more fun. I'm, I think, following this daily path and we're all doing the same thing. It got old and we're ready to really shake things up in this world in more the ways than one. And yeah, it's here. Mm -hmm. What do you see this upcoming year? Um, this is the last episode of the podcast before 2021. What do you think the biggest change in tech is going to be? Uh, I would say synthetic biology is going to be a whole new field that it's going to seem like it came out of nowhere, but researchers and technologists have been building it for ages now. Um, and that's going to include everything from printing skin 
um, for skin grafts uh, to having AI embedded in us. Um, so maybe like a brain computer interface. Um, all of those conversations are going to start to happen and get taken a lot more seriously um, because the technology has advanced quite rapidly in that space. Um, also, maybe printing clothes that are biodegradable, um, which is like a great element or printing packaging that's actually biodegradable um, or more 3D printing at home and growing mm-hmm. food, growing um, our own meat and things like that. Um, so I think synthetic biology will be something that we'll start to hear a lot more of this year. Uh, it's something that I'm really excited about. I think we have to figure out, again, the data issues there and the ethical issues. Um, but I think you should be on the lookout for that. That is so exciting. And I feel like you just touched on some of the largest problems we face as a society, whether it be eating too much meat and that affecting our environment and the clothing that's extremely wasteful. So that's really exciting. But also that, I mean, we just talked on several different industries that aren't super heavy tech-based. Well, being a doctor is extremely tech-based, but a lot of those aren't. So should students be really focusing on understanding technology first? Because no matter what, that's going to play into any field that they end up in? Yeah, I think um, having a basic sense of digital literacy. So how well did you adapt to Zoom? Were you able to use it quickly um, and efficiently? Or did you struggle with it? Uh, those are the types of areas that you want to make sure um, you're a bit more savvy in. You don't necessarily need to run and learn code, um, but I do think you should be aware of what how technology generally works um, and what it can do for you. So, for example, if you know machine intelligence and machine learning algorithms, learn on their own and you're interested in a career at Nike making shoes, being aware that you could implement AI into sneakers to understand more about somebody's foot pattern. You don't need to actually know anything about the technology, um, but you have a general idea of how it works and then how it could help you and your job or your company. Um, That's what I would encourage people to do. And of course, if you are really into STEM and coding, um, then you'll definitely be heavily employed over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, But that in itself isn't, you know, the be all end all because eventually AI is going to do what it does best. It it is code. So it will learn how to code and code itself. Um, But I think having a general idea of how these technologies work and how they could solve the problems that you're interested in, um, I would advise kids to start leaning into. Yeah. Oh my gosh. If, if if you want job security, coding <laughs> is the way to go. I mean, it has been, it always will be, but that's really interesting. You can still, you don't have to be well-versed in technology, but having a general grasp so you know the capabilities and the possibilities so you can kind of think bigger. I think a lot of people get stuck in thinking smaller, not realizing how advanced technology really can be and where it can take us. So I, yeah, I mean, I hope they start implementing that in more schools, though, because I feel like the most tech-savvy class I had growing up, and I'm only 29, was my typing class, which now saying sounds absurd that I took a typing class. I'm like, no, no yeah. kid would ever need that these days. I don't even remember any of that. And I don't think universities or high schools have implemented that much technology, futurism. Uh, we do do a lot of talks on campuses. Um, And it's the students that reach out and organize them um, because they're aware things are changing 
uh, and fast. And, you know, institutions are usually slow moving, especially ones that are kind of funded by government. So they do usually take a little bit more time to move. Um, but hopefully we do start seeing changes so people don't just graduate into a workforce that they're totally unfamiliar with. Yeah. And luckily, the kids stepping up will hopefully create a more diverse field as well. Do you face a lot of issues being in tech, being a woman speaking about tech? Do you face struggles of people taking you seriously, also being a model? Do you have those problems? Yeah, definitely. Um, And that mentality even existed pre-tech, pre-modeling, just in general business world. Um, But it's I definitely notice it, especially if you introduce yourself as a model in a tech room or a really corporate room. Um, The response is very varied, uh, but I also like to make sure that that's visible because that's exactly why we have these problems in technology. The people coding these technologies aren't representative of the general population. So if we had more people with diverse backgrounds, um, whether that's racially, ethically, their beliefs, their careers, uh, we wouldn't be having some of the problems that we do have today. But of course, yeah, I definitely have my fair share of, you know, discrimination, backhanded comments. Um, I could go on and on about different examples, but I don't let it get in the way of what it is that I'm trying to do and what it is that I'm trying to solve. I know, I know that I know my craft um, and I stick by the fact that we wouldn't have these problems if people like the very people who, you know, exhibit the issue, um, if it wasn't just a bunch of them in the room. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that will change. And it starts with representation as everything does. So you even just being there. And I love that you continue to introduce yourself as also a model that is part of who you are and what you do and helps you be knowledgeable on so many different aspects. So I know a lot of people might shy away from introducing themselves as something that they know might get them some backhanded comments. But so thank you for being who you are and standing up for who you are and not hiding those aspects because that representation is key. Thank you. Yeah. I think if you have to minimize yourself, then maybe you're not in the right space. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so what did you feel about, I know the social dilemma when it came out was like, got everyone going talking about AI, which was great because I feel like it was not super mainstream to speak about. And I mean, my mom definitely wasn't talking about it yet. What were your thoughts on it? And was there anything that you questioned or disagreed with at all? Um, I think the response to it, people being very scared and alarmed, I think that that was a good reaction. And that's reassuring that people aren't just complacent or that it hasn't gone so far that people are like, well, forget about it. I'm just not even concerned. Um, so I think the outrage was was good, and I was happy to see that. Of course, there were elements of it that it has to be an entertaining movie. Um, so there were certain things that I'm, you know, were focused on a little bit more, um, and not all of the best sides of how technology and social media, in particular, has changed societies in, in many good ways. Um, but overall, I. I didn't disagree with what had to be said about algorithms and the data that's captured um, and how much companies and people who we don't know know about us. That is a problem that can't go on the way it has been. Um, So I think, yes, some of it was quite entertaining, but there were many elements of pure truth. And I was happy to see uh, the response in many ways. 
Yeah. Do you feel like the fear is displaced a little bit? I mean, even with the COVID vaccine coming out, I've seen so many articles and heard people speak about how they're terrified to take it because of there might be tracking in the vaccine. And to me, that just sounds silly because I'm like, well, you have your phone. You use a phone every day. Like you, you already are being tracked. If, if somebody wants to track you, that is happening. Do you think there's a lot of fear in our society? Do you feel like it is being placed in the proper place? I, yeah, I think the conspiracy theory thing is a big problem that social media and just the platforms fuel and the internet fuels. Um, that to me is incredibly alarming. And it, yes, maybe it's not a Facebook problem. Nobody at Facebook is starting and spreading the conspiracy theories and they're not intentionally having them published. Um, it's of course the people that are creating them and starting them, but having the tools and that much reach to spread something that is so nonsensical, um, is very, very messy. Uh, and so in terms of the fear, I think it doesn't help that algorithms amplify what people respond to and you respond to things that are more alarming and conspiracy theories tend to be that. Um, how we solve that problem without censoring certain people in society, you know, maybe it's you have to, you know, produce your sources the way you do with a school project, um, whatever it is, the solution. I think I am more scared. It's scary to know that people think so absurdly and that they then have a platform to share that. And then there's an algorithm launching it further. Um, all three of those steps are very alarming. And I think we need to figure out a way to deal with that quickly. Um, because yes, yeah, so with the vaccine, um, oh, I've heard some chaotic things. Like it's something coming from Jupiter and all of this stuff. And you're like, why does this have 50,000 likes? Um, but of course, with reaffirmation, if you see something that has a lot of response or it's by somebody with a verified check mark, it seems more valid. Um, so there's all of these little tools that I think we need to start poking into. But I think I'm more scared of the conspiracy theories I read and then knowing that people believe that this is true. That to me is very alarming. But you can, of course, always blame some people. Sometimes it is challenging if that's the only information you've been exposed to. Um, it's highly problematic for many reasons, but sometimes it isn't somebody's fault. And I totally understand that. Um, but I do think we need to stop this before it gets crazier because it is just getting wild, some of the conspiracy theories. It is wild. And it's such a slippery slope of, I think we also see it with I, I, at least my parents' generation, I see it talking to my mom a lot where she'll send me an article and I guess because I grew up with on technology, I look at it and I immediately know that's not a reliable source and I just don't even finish reading it. But she scrolls on Facebook and she thinks it's reliable because her friend at the hair salon said that it was. And it's really scary that we aren't looking about from where these sources are coming from. I think that's a great idea to have to cite it like you would in a school paper. When I do an ad on Instagram, I have to select that it is an ad and say who I am working with to give that disclosure. It'd be great if we also had a pull down tab that was like, this is opinion based. I do not have sources. These are just my thoughts. Or this is entertainment-based. Take this with a grain of salt. This is a little bit sensationalized for you to enjoy consuming. Or if it is fact-based, sharing it, having the site, having it 
all your sources laid out, I think that would be extremely beneficial and cut out a lot of the noise because people won't want to go through the hassle of citing their sources. But then, as you mentioned, where where do we draw that line with freedom of speech and having to explain yourself even further? It's a difficult balance. And who gets to decide you know, what sources are more valid um, and which voices are more valid. And sometimes we do need information quickly when it is an important crisis in the world. And sometimes just having a lot of people be able to input that on the internet and it go viral is part of some of the problems that we've solved. So it's, it's a very slippery slope and it's a very challenging problem to solve, but I think it's one that we have to start working on. Absolutely. I think just people investing more time in how their opinions are being formed. It's hard when you spend for a lot of people the majority of their day on their phone, on their computers, you don't even realize your opinions being formed and shaped. Even if you didn't read an article, but if you scroll and see five people with check marks by their names saying a similar thing, that's going to be playing into your head and you're going to be more prone to believing things. So it's hard. And there, maybe there aren't answers yet, but I'm sure great minds that are coming from the youth of this world are going to going to find a way to solve it. Oh. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. We are just about out of time. I have one last question for you. I've been asking every guest on the show, which is if you could give your younger self advice, what would it be? I would say to my younger self, but yes, defining success for yourself, I think is so, it's definitely changed how I view my career and who I am and who I want to be. So yeah, I would say to define it for yourself. Yeah. And I think definitely easier said than done, but it is something that is worth the effort and worth the trials and tribulations of it because it's, it's really the only way to find happiness when you understand who you want to be for yourself and not for other people. Absolutely. I completely agree. Thank you so much for educating me a bit on AI. I feel like I'm going to continue my day f- falling down a rabbit hole because I'm just stuck on it. And I'm like, I'm excited about it. It's wonderful. Our world is expanding. And then I'm like, but I'm terrified because all my thoughts are being controlled and I don't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is the catch 22. I I can promise you that there are some incredible minds working to really make this right um, that are really starting to get visibility. So I do have hope that a lot is going to change um, and people are moving AI and technology in the right direction, but it is going to take continued effort um, and people speaking up and challenging how things have been done. Well, you give me a lot of faith. I will continue to watch all of your videos on Instagram. They enlighten me and educate me every day. Where can everyone else find you so that they can follow and be a little more educated along with you? Thank you. Well, my Instagram, I try to post everything that I'm up to and what way is usually up to. Um, So that's a good place. Our Way Talks Instagram, um, we post strictly just about the future of work and about technology. Um, And then our Way website, Uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter. And so every Monday we do a newsletter about the future of work and the skills that you should be learning or how it's changing. And that's just at waytalks.com and way with an E on the end. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sinead. This was so wonderful. And I will see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.